The second Bible reading is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. This is a passage about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is above all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. How exactly does our universe work? Nobody knows for sure. For centuries, physicists have been searching for a unifying theory of everything. A way of explaining the principles that govern this universe in its entirety. But to date, they've been unable to come up with any single theory that accounts for everything. I'm no physicist, but my superficial reading suggests that Einstein's theory of general relativity is really good at explaining the behaviour of very big objects, whereas quantum mechanics is really good at explaining the behaviour of really small objects. And each theory works very well at either end of the spectrum of size, but they're mutually incompatible. So they can't both be right, and yet they both seem to work. And they can't explain things like black holes. We're relying on Mark Smith to sort that out for us when he's finished his PhD at Oxford. So the current thinking seems to be that these theories, together with more recent theories like string theory and loop quantum gravity, all need to be combined into a single M theory, which I'm told actually works by offering us trillions of theories all of which offer different ways of explaining the universe. It's like there are billions of universes, like bubbles, and some bubbles can actually form inside other bubbles, and each of those universes operates according to their own laws and principles. So as far as I can make out, the current thinking seems to be that any single theory needs to include potentially trillions of other theories in order to give a coherent account of everything. That seems to be where we're at at the moment. For St Paul, it's Jesus. He's the one who solves the mystery of the universe. And he would tell physicists that there's no point in looking for a theory which makes sense of everything because the one who created the universe and who holds it together and who makes it work is a person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the one who holds it all together. It's not just some 
physical law that keeps everything working harmoniously, it is upheld by Jesus, who ensures that our universe doesn't shake itself apart or otherwise disintegrate. He's the one who created everything, he's the one who holds it all together. And Colossians 1, 15-20 is a hymn of praise to Jesus, the Son of God. In him, the invisible God was made manifest to the world. No one has ever seen God, nobody can see God, but Jesus becomes the manifestation of God in the world. So when we look at Jesus, we can see what God is like. He's described as the firstborn of creation, the one through whom all things were created. And again, the language there is very difficult to get our heads around. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the firstborn of creation? The, the language of firstborn is the language of honour. So in Psalm 89, the Lord says, you know, this, this king will be my firstborn son, and that will mean he'll be higher than the kings of all the earth. It's like there is no greater name of honour or power or status or authority than to say, this is God's firstborn. And in that position of honour, in that position of priority, in that position of, of dominion, Jesus is sovereign over the whole of creation, which he made. Nothing that is made was made if Jesus didn't make it. But the idea of firstborn as well conveys the idea of, of being close to God's heart. Like a firstborn child, there's nothing as special as that for a parent, that sense of intimacy, closeness with God. Philo could talk about the divine word as God's firstborn. Feel the sense of, of Jesus being as close to God as you can get. So this language of firstborn conveys a sense of of closeness to God, intimacy with God, proximity to God, and as well sovereignty over everything else. He is the highest. There is no one who is higher. There was a Jewish tradition that when God created the world, wisdom was his agent acting on his behalf as he did so. And Paul takes that idea and applies it to Jesus. Before anything else was created, Jesus was there as the exact representation of God. As the firstborn son might be described as the very image of his father. Jesus is the image of God. Begotten, not created, as we sang in the carols running up to Christmas. Because by him or in him, everything that was created, was created. The world we live in, in all its beauty and terror, everything we see is a result of Jesus Creative activity. Things in heaven, on on earth. Things visible and invisible. All thrones, powers, rulers and authorities. Everything created by him. Everything under his sovereign control. There is no authority or power to rival or challenge that of Christ. Because all other authorities and powers derive their existence from him and are dependent on him for their existence. Nothing can challenge him. Nothing can unseat him. Nothing can displace his authority. 
right into a city that hosted a multitude of religious cults and practices. Paul wants to make it clear that if you're worshipping Jesus, you're not just adding one extra religion into the mix, putting an extra deity into an already overfull pantheon of different gods. No, if you're worshipping Jesus, he's the one. Everything else comes under him. Everything else derives its existence from him. Everything else is dependent on him. What other spiritual powers might be at work in the universe, and Paul doesn't deny their existence, he says they all derive their very existence from Christ. So he's the one to worship and honour, because everything else was created by him and for him. Everything else has Jesus as its source and its goal. Everything comes from him, everything goes back to him in the end. The universe which emanates from Christ ultimately finds its final purpose and fulfilment and destiny in Christ. Before anything else, Jesus was. And that temporal priority over everything else means that Jesus is to be honoured and worshipped in preference to everything else because he holds it all together. The universe in all its mind-boggling complexity functions because Jesus is there in charge. He's the one who ensures that all the complex processes governing the universe work together, even though on the face of it we scratch our heads and we can't see how this system works and that system works and how they work together. It exists because of Jesus and it works because of Jesus. But then in verse 18 there comes another surprise. He's the head of the body, the church. The one who is the source of all creation, the one who made everything that exists, he declares himself to be Lord of the church. He's the one in charge of us. We are the people who belong to him particularly. Then as now, it's easy for Christians to feel a small, beleaguered and insignificant minority. But Paul asserts that we have at our head the creator of the universe. And if Christ is the image of the invisible God, is it too fanciful to say that the church as his body is in some sense the manifestation of his ongoing presence in the world? Because Christ didn't visit the world for 30 brief years to leave it behind and disappear without a trace. The trace that he's left behind is us. We're his body. He's present within us as his people. It's our role and our calling to embody the character and nature of Christ in whatever part of the world we find ourselves. But that's just the start. There's more to come because Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Because he rose again from the dead, we have the assurance that we will live as well. We will share in his resurrection life. As his physical body was raised from the grave, so we as members of his body, the church, will be raised to eternal life as well. So our role is not merely to represent the presence of Christ in the world, daunting as that might be, we are also, in a sense, harbingers of the life to come. 
as Christ was raised, so we will be raised. We are witnesses both to his resurrection, which has already taken place, and we declare faith in our own future resurrection, which will take place because we belong to the one who has been raised from the dead as the first fruits. If Jesus reigns supreme over this world because he made it, he also reigns supreme over the world to come because he has inaugurated its coming by his resurrection from the dead. Everything that is now, he's in control of. Over everything that's to come, he's sovereign over that as well because he is the firstborn from the dead. How is this possible? It's because God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Jesus embodies the complete fullness of God. That is not to say that there's no part of God that wasn't in Jesus, because clearly the Father was still in heaven when Jesus was on earth. But it would be true to say that there was no aspect of God that wasn't found in Jesus. As F.F. Bruce put it, all the attributes and activities of God, his spirit, word, (coughs) wisdom, and glory, are perfectly displayed in Christ. Jesus is the fullness of God. Nothing short of amazing that the living God should make himself known by becoming a human being in that kind of way, yet that is precisely what God did. And that's why Jesus has been revered and worshipped down through the centuries to this present day. You've heard me mention it before, but it's still an image that stays with me. I've actually used pictures here, but there there is a track that says, if if there's a God, why doesn't he tell us? It's a picture of the universe and the sun and the stars and all the the amazing (coughs) breadth of the universe and and the wonder. If there's a God, why doesn't he let us know that that he's there? And you open it, And inside there's a picture of three crosses and it says, would we believe him if he did? Because he has revealed himself to us. He has made himself known to us. He has shown us that he is real and he revealed himself in the person of his son. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified on a cross. And that's even even more mind-boggling because you read all this stuff about image of the invisible God and the firstborn of creation and the firstborn from the dead and you think, yeah, I I can see how all this language might apply to a cosmic Christ. And where's the name of Jesus in this hymn of praise? It doesn't appear. It seems at first sight to be pretty anonymous. He's the image of the invisible God. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body. He has the supremacy in everything. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All this language seems to refer to some kind of heavenly being. Terry wanted to say, can I start with saying it's Jesus at the beginning? I said, well, no, start with he, because that's what it says. It doesn't name Jesus as such in these verses. So how do we know that it all refers to Jesus, not just some kind of cosmic heavenly being? Well, although Jesus isn't named, he's clearly identified by what he did. Because the reference to the blood of his cross is a clear reference to his crucifixion. And the reference to being firstborn from the dead is a clear reference to his resurrection. Reference to the church marks us out as his followers. Nobody else 
crucified, raised from the dead, head of the church. Only Jesus fits that bill. And it's the paradox that the heavenly Christ, the creator of all that is, is one and the same with Jesus of Nazareth, who died on a cross. The most degrading and shameful death imaginable. One of of countless thousands crucified under the Roman policy of stamping out any form of rebellion against the empire. How do you hold together the majesty of heaven with the shame and degradation of a peasant crucified on a cross? It's true, it works. Because it's through the cross of Jesus Christ that God reconciled all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Paul at this point doesn't offer us a rationale or an explanation for why the universe is in the state it's in. But clearly today when you read the news you can see that the world as it is is not how a God of love would want the world to be. Brian made that point in his prayers earlier. In Paul's day, the world's rebellion against God and estrangement from God was vividly manifested in the brutality and inhumanity of the Roman Empire, which imposed its own version of world peace on the surrounding nations at the point of a sword. Peace came at the price of total subjugation to and complete control by the Empire of Rome. And the cross... The cross was its direst form of torture and execution, designed to inspire fear into all would-be enemies. And that was how Jesus, the Son of God, met his end. A victim of Roman injustice, torture (coughs) and violence. Yet the amazing thing is that his violent, painful agonising death was the means that God used to reconcile the world in all its violence and hatred and evil and suffering to himself. It was there at the cross that God turns us from being his enemies into his friends. It's there at the cross that God overrules our rejection of him with his acceptance of us. Where our sin against God is met and overcome by his grace. Our obsession with violence and death met and countered by his forgiveness of our sin. And his resurrection from death into life. When Jesus died on the cross, God absorbed into himself all the hatred and the evil, and the violence, and the suffering, and the wrongness of the world. So that when he rose from the dead, he could inaugurate a new creation, a new order where such things are absent. So our dismay at the way the world is now doesn't lead us to despair, Because through the death and resurrection of Christ we have the assurance that this is not how it will all end. But because of Jesus, life will ultimately triumph over death. Goodness will prevail over evil. And the world which God created 
will ultimately be reconciled to him. And if we want to be part of that reconciliation, then quite simply we have to recognise that Jesus is the one who created this world. He's the one who redeemed it. He's the one who will raise it from death to life. And it becomes personal when we recognise that is true of us as well. He's the one who created us. He's the one who's redeemed us and reconciled us to God. He's the one who will raise us from death to life. So amidst all the ideologies and philosophies and religions competing for our attention and allegiance, today as in Colossae, when Paul wrote this letter, he would direct us through it all and above it all to Jesus. As the one from whom all things come. The one who holds everything together. The one who has reconciled all things through his death on the cross. The one who is the firstborn from the dead and who raises the world from death to life. He is the one. He is the one who has the supremacy. He is the one. He is the one who has the preeminence. He is the one. He is the one who is worthy of our worship. He's the one worth dedicating our lives to and living our lives for. Because if you want to encounter God in all his fullness and the reality of his love and grace and mercy and life-changing power, there is simply nowhere else to go but Jesus. And nothing else to say but Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we hear the words, but there are still times when we can't see you clearly. We struggle with the world the way it is. Hard to see your sovereignty over it. Hard to see your hand in creation sometimes. We see all the different religions and we struggle sometimes to see why this one is the right one. We hear the promises of eternal life but this world seems so real and the life to come so remote. Lord, we acknowledge the fragility of our faith. Our struggle sometimes to connect with and make sense of the words that we read in Scripture. But thank you that you are a God of grace. And you save us not because of our goodness or even the strength of our faith, but you save us because you love us. Thank you, Jesus, for meeting us at our point of need. Thank you for dying for us upon the cross. Thank you that you have reconciled us to God. That you have forgiven us, that we are accepted. That as we put our trust in you, however wavering that might be, 
You redeem us. And you promise to keep us and to raise us to be with you. So that where our faith is wavering, enable us to see you. Where we feel like we're losing it, keep tight hold of us. May the words that we read and the words that we hear be real in our hearts and minds and bring us faith and hope and courage and the ability to live our lives for you in love and humble service. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus because there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved.